Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we were discussing earlier, or maybe even arguing, as to how long it's been since I was last in this actual room. I remember the room well since I walked in here. And the argument was whether it's been 10 years or 12 years. But the one thing there's no argument about, at least on my part, is it's been too long. Um, I've uh, watched this school from a distance always. I'm a member. I'm, a, I'm an Englishman. And those of you that know anything about uh, uh, football, that's the real football, not the stuff you play over here. <laughs> you may have heard of a, a, a team, the team I've been a fanatical follower of since I was about six years old, called Chelsea. Uh, <laughs> see me later. <laughs> um, but Chelsea Football Club, the, uh, the acronym for Chelsea Football Club is CFC. I've always been a CFC supporter, but CFC is also, as far as I'm concerned, the Christendom Fan Club. <laughs> and I've been a, an, unof an uh, unofficial member of that ever since I first heard of the school, which is before I came to the United States. That was reinforced by my three visits here. Um, some time back, and it really is a joy to be back at this wonderful institution of which you are honored to be part, and I'm honored to be also part of, albeit just for one evening. So I'm here this evening to talk about the, the Lord of the Rings, and specifically the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings, and more specifically, unlocking the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings. Back in 1997, when I um, still lived in England, I wrote a book called Tolkien, Man and Myth. That's the first commercial, by the way, for the books on the table out there. There'll be others. When I became a US citizen, I realized you, you, you can't give a talk without a commercial break every five minutes, so expect one. <laughs> but I was provoked to write my book, Tolkien, Man and Myth. The word provoked was the right word by the response of the self-styled literati in England to the emergence of the Lord of the Rings as the greatest book of the 20th century in a number of different opinion polls. The first one was a, a national one carried out by Waterstones booksellers, sort of the British equivalent of Barnes and Noble, and Channel 4 TV, one of the four nationally networked TV stations over there, working together, uh, asked for the greatest uh, book of the 20th century. In second place was um, 1984 by George Orwell, but getting almost 50% more votes the 1984 was the Lord of the Rings. And then there were other polls that, that, um, that uh, reinforced that in the, all within a space of a month or two back in 1997. And it finished with the Folio Society. The, the Folio Society is sort of a, a bibliophile's private club, a sort of a, a, a club for book nerds. <laughs> and you pay so much a year and you get sort of specially published sort of guilt-bound editions of the great works of literature. And they asked their members um, what was the greatest work uh, of all time. And the Bible was excluded, and the Quran was excluded, but everything else was included. And in third place was David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Um, now, I think over here, as much as I love Charles Dickens, I can't see David Copperfield coming third in any national poll. Now, second place, however, was Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Now, let's have a little bit of a test here. Put up your hand if you've read Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. All right. Now, put your hand down. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. 
Put your hand down if you're a girl. <laughs> All right. Now, now you, you can put your hands down now, you, you embarrassed men. But what I would say is that Pride and Prejudice is a girly book Pride and Prejudice is a girly book that every man should read. <laughs> so for those men that had their hands up, congratulations. For the rest of you, shame on you. <laughs> but anyway, that came second. But the winner by a considerable margin was The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien. And the response of the literati was one of horror. One of them said, this just shows the folly of teaching people to read. <laughs> now, my favorite one, now, you most of you are too young to remember this person, um, but there's someone called Jermaine Greer, and she was a radical feminist at the great women's liberation movement of the late 60s, early 70s, she published a book called The Female Eunuch in 1970, which is an international bestseller of women's liberation. And what she said, and I quote her, I can't quote scripture very well, but I can quote Jermaine Greer on Tolkien. <laughs> she said, ever since my arrival at Cambridge in 1964, where I encountered a tribe of full-grown women wearing puffed sleeves, clutching teddy bears, and babbling on excitedly about the doings of hobbits, it's been my worst nightmare that the Lord of the Rings should emerge as the greatest work of the 20th century. <laughs> the nightmare has become a reality. <laughs> now, there's a part of me, and it's not the part of me that's going to get me to heaven. <laughs> and there's a part of me that thinks it was Tolkien laboring for all those years to write the Lord of the Rings just to make Jermaine Greer's nightmares come true. <laughs> but as my wife would say to me, and therefore to you, you won't get to heaven for long as you find that funny. <laughs> so I was provoked to write my book on the Lord of the Rings, and I was provoked basically um, because these people that condemned the Lord of the Rings had clearly never read it. It's quite obvious that the criticism was done by people who refused to even open the book. They dismissed it out of pride and prejudice. <laughs> Which they've also probably not read. Tolkien said of the Lord of the Rings, and I'm quoting here, his words exactly, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Fundamentally religious and Catholic, of course, as if it's obvious. And yet, of course, for 90% of the people that read The Lord of the Rings, it's not in the least bit obvious, which is why it needs unlocking. Tolkien also said in another letter that there was a scale of significance between his relationship as the author of the work and 
the work itself. He talked about that scale of significance. He said at the bottom of that scale of significance is an author's private life. And he said that he understands that Beethoven um, cheated his publisher and abominably ill-treated his nephew, but that has nothing to do with his work. Now, for what it's worth, I disagree with Tolkien. I do think that if uh, someone has a disordered private life, it's gonna, that disorder is going to come forth in the work, whether it's music or literature or, or the visual arts. But we put that to one side. So, but the more important factors, the more significant factors, you said, was the, my taste in languages. There's obviously a large and important ingredient in the Lord of the Rings, he said. And clearly the linguistic dimension of the Lord of the Rings is, is a is a very important ingredient and, and, and worthy of uh, a lecture in its own right. But he said, but, but more important, at the very top of the scale of significance is the fact I am a Catholic, which can be deduced from my story. Sorry, sorry. The fact I am a Christian, which can be deduced from my stories and in fact a Roman Catholic. So the Lord of the Rings is fundamentally religious and Catholic, and the fact that Tolkien is a Catholic is the most important element in his authorship of that work. So let's look at that. Let's explore that. And I want to begin at the beginning. Not the beginning of the Lord of the Rings, but the beginning of Middle Earth. Because in the opening chapter of the Silmarillion, there's the Ainul Indala, which is the Elven Genesis, the Elvish book of Genesis. And the very first sentence of that is, In the beginning was the one, Iluvata, the All-Father. So in just, I haven't counted the words, but something like 12 words there, the first sentence, we have established an absolutely essential part of the Lord of the Rings. It's not an atheistic cosmos. Middle Earth is not a cosmos with no God. You will not find any atheists in the Lord of the Rings, try as you may. But it's also not a polytheistic cosmos, not a cosmos with many gods. It's a monotheistic cosmos, the One, capital O, Iluvata, the All-Father, the Father of All. And then... There's some profound theology here, which is also worthy of, talk, of a talk on its own. That God, through the firstborn of his thought, the archangels, present to them the great music. The great music of creation. So you have God the Father as the composer of this symphony, which is being itself, the cosmos itself. But God doesn't say to the archangels, sit back, listen, and enjoy. He says, play. In other words, this is the great music. This is a symphony I've composed. You are the orchestra. You play it. And there's profound theology that applies to us as well as angels there. And of course, and predictably, and of course God knows it, I almost said knew it, but there is no knew it for God. God's omnipresence is not primarily that he's here with us in this room, but the fact that everything is present to him. So, predictably, one of the 
members of the orchestra, not surprisingly the most powerful one of the angels called Melchor, which means a mighty one, decided he didn't want to play in tune. He wanted to play his own tune. And disharmony enters the cosmos. And God says to Melchor, the mighty one, the mightiest of the angels, that he has to know that there's no theme that he can introduce into the great music, however dark, however evil, that God himself, the composer, will not weave back into the symphony itself in ways beyond, beautiful ways beyond Melchor's imagining. No evil that Satan or anyone else can do that God will not weave back into his great music in beautiful ways. In fact, more beautiful than we can imagine. So profound theology here. So Tolkien is establishing the cosmos of Middle Earth. One God, deliberately making parallels with the book of Genesis and with the fall of Satan and his linguistic clues. Melkor means mighty one. When he falls, there's a war in heaven. And he's defeated. And the language that Tolkien uses as Melkor falls into the void is very sim similar to the language of the book of Isaiah about the fall of Lucifer. How hast thou fallen, Lucifer, star of the morning? Lucifer means light bearer. Melchor is the mightiest of the angels. Lucifer is the brightest of the angels. It's the mightiest who falls. But when, Mel when Melchor falls, he forfeits the name of Melchor. He now becomes known as Morgoth. And Mor Morgoth means enemy. When Lucifer falls from heaven, he forfeits the name of Lucifer. He's no longer the brightest one. He's the prince of darkness. So henceforth, he's no longer called Lucifer. He's called Satan. And Satan means enemy. So Tolkien is making the linguistic connection between his Satan and our Satan, both of which forfeit, both of whom forfeit their true name through disobedience. And Sauron in the Silmarillion, is described as the greatest of Melkor's servants. So the dark lord in the Lord of the Rings is the greatest of Satan's servants. And like Melkor, like Satan, he's a fallen angel. He's demonic. So the evil forces in the Lord of the Rings are demonic. The other thing you won't find, you won't find atheists in Middle-earth, you also won't find relativists. With one exception, we'll get to him. So what's in a name? We have Salmon, the greatest of um, Melkor's servants, a demon. But worm tongue. Worm tongue. Now this is a great school. I'm sure you've read old English verse here, such as Beowulf and the Doom of the Rune and stuff like that. Um, how many of you, that, that's all the good stuff, how many of you have seen um, 
Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> there we go. All right then, worm tongue. This is my rendition of worm tongue. If this mic doesn't move, I'm going to shout. The point is, of course, that a worm in Old English is not an earthworm. The Old English word for worm, so the Old English word for dragon is worm. The Old English wor word for serpent is worm. So worm tongue is dragon tongue or serpent tongue. And Tolkien sometimes is not all that subtle. So for instance, there is the scene when Gandalf is with Theoden, and he says, see Theoden, here is a snake pointing to Wormtongue. And then he says to Wormtongue, down on your belly, snake, echoing the words of God the Father in the Garden of Eden. And Theoden hisses his reply. So in the Lord of the Rings, the Evil forces, the dark forces, are demonic. But the real key that unlocks the Lord of the Rings is the one evil character, if that's the right word, which we might overlook if we're not careful. Because the one evil character, if we may call it that, is the ring itself. Because the key to understanding the Catholicism Lord of the Rings is, on, is in the ring, and specifically the date on which the ring is destroyed. Now you're very, very, I'm expecting there to be a host of hands up here. Put your hand up if you know on what date the ring was destroyed. Oh, quite a few, okay, I thought as much. No chance of catching you out, except for the men who read Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> the ring was destroyed on March the 25th. Now I've given talks on the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings at all sorts of places, at state universities, and at Ivy League schools such as Princeton and Harvard there, same thing, Harvard, Columbia, etc. And I give this same talk, I might tone it down a bit, um, but basically essentially the same talk. And I say March the 25th, and you get a host of 
blanks get theirs. March the 25th. So I say, I'll give you a clue. What happened nine months after March the 25th? Now, Princeton students. April, May, June, July. <laughs> Christmas! Right. What happens on December the 25th? Santa Claus comes down the chimney. Now, I must confess that I'm exaggerating. Even at Princeton, things aren't that bad. So what happened nine months before Jesus was born? So what happened nine months before Jesus was born? Well, one thing you'd be sure of about uh, state universities and Ivy League schools, they know the facts of life. Someone's born nine months before. Okay, put it together. And then you say, and imagine you're Princeton students now, or I don't know, Cleveland State University or something. Imagine you're students in those places. And I say, March the 25th is a more important date than Christmas. Because it's on March the 25th that the Word becomes flesh. It's on March the 25th that God becomes man. And that's because life begins at conception and not at birth. I didn't get that applause at Princeton or Cleveland State University. So March the 25th, so the, the ring is destroyed on March the 25th. Already our antennae should be twitching here. But what is not as well known is that March the 25th is not only the, the date of the Annunciation, when the Word becomes flesh, it's also the date of the crucifixion. Now, even at Christendom, I bet some of you didn't know that. And that's because we celebrate Good Friday. Certainly, Good Friday is not going to be on March the 25th this year. We celebrate Good Friday as a movable feast. But the event itself happened once and once only in history on a specific date. Right, you're a skeptic now, you're saying, yeah, how do we know that was March the 25th? Well, let me just make a, an observation. I'm a miserable sinner. And I remember the date on which my father died. I also remember the date on which my mother died. Do we really think that the mother of Christ would forget the date on which she saw her son being crucified. Or that St. John would forget that date. Or Mary Magdalene forget that date. Or for that matter, the ten cowardly apostles that ran away. Would they forget their day of shame? So this date was enshrined in the early church and known in the early church. And we've only forgotten it because we don't celebrate that date anymore. Perhaps we should. I'm not saying Good Friday should be movable, not the kind of change to the teaching of the church. But I think we should honor March the 25th as the date of the Annunciation and the date of the crucifixion. My this is, by the way, I must be the only speaker. This might be the last time I ever come back. <laughs> must be the only speaker at Christendom College who's ever come here and says, my main problem with Holy Mother Church is. <laughs> but my main problem with Holy Mother Church is that March the 25th is not a holy day of obligation. Pope Francis, take note. 
But also, when we talk about the significance of dates, the Fellowship of the Ring leave Rivendell on December the 25th. Now, March the 25th, the date is given in the text of the Lord of the Rings. This is for the nerds out there who want to be particular about this. March the 25th, the date is given in the Lord of the Rings text proper. December the 25th is given in, the, in one of the appendices. It's written by Tolkien, so it's legitimate, okay? <laughs> um, in the Lord of the Rings text, it just says late December. But uh, Fellowship leaves Rivendell on December the 25th. So the journey from Rivendell to Mount Doom, Golgotha, Calvary, is the life of Christ. December 25th, his birth, to March the 25th, his death. And the ring is destroyed on that significantly charged date. But if the ring is destroyed on that date, we have to ask ourselves, what does that make the ring? Because what is destroyed on March the 25th by the birth, or by the conception, birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ is sin. So the ring is synonymous with sin. And this is profound psychologically. Because what happens when you put the ring on? No, what happens when you put the ring on? I'm invisible, see, I can catch you out. You're not that smart at Christendom, really. It was a trick question. Because yes, it's true, you do become invisible, but you only become invisible to the good world that God made. You become more visible than ever to the Dark Lord. Sauron can see you much more clearly when you have the ring on, because you've entered his world. So when you put the ring on, we might call mortal sin, putting the ring on is an act of sin, and you keep the ring on, habitual sin, you enter Satan's world, not only can he see you, fall under his dominion. If you keep the ring on for too long, you begin to fade. You cease to be the good hobbit you were meant to be and become a golem. There should be a new verb in the English language to golemize. If you keep doing that, you're going to golemize yourself. <laughs> so there's a profound psychological understanding of sin and its negative consequences. Now what I'll do for the remainder of the talk is just quickly go through um, the main characters in the fellowship to look at the Catholic dimension in those characters. Well, the hobbits primarily primarily, are everyman figures. Tolkien said in one of his letters, I am, in fact, a hobbit. And all of us either should be hobbits, or should be wanting to be hobbits, or should be trying to be hobbits. And if you have no desire to be a hobbit, you're going to golemize yourself. <laughs> and the best way of explaining how the hobbits are everyman figures is to look at that other work of Tolkien's, The Hobbit. Because the one thing Bilbo doesn't want to do is leave his cozy hobbit hole, his comfort zone. 
You've got everything he needs there. All his creature comforts are there. His wine, his food, his cutlery. It's a civilized place. I don't have to translate that at silver. Where do I? You know what cutlery means. <laughs> his crockery. He's got all these wonderful things. Why on, why on earth would he want to go on an adventure? Gandalf says, well, it would be good for you. Chesterton says, an adventure is merely an inconvenience rightly perceived. <laughs> so, Bilbo, against his better judgment, decides to go on the adventure. And for the first part of the book, he hates the very idea of it and keeps wishing he'd be back home where he could have absolute necessities, necessities for life like pocket handkerchiefs. But he grows in wisdom and virtue through the experience of suffering and through the experience of sacrificing himself for others. So when he comes home, everyone thinks he's dead. They're already selling his precious possessions. So what we have symbolically is, from the point of view of when he comes home, is a dead and resurrected Bilbo Baggins, who's learned the priceless lesson of the gospel, that you have to die to yourself in order to live. And the real symbolic thing in The Hobbit is um, Smaug the dragon is possessed by his possessions. He lives under the mountain, surrounded by his treasure. Bilbo's exactly the same. He lives under the hill. Under hill is his address, surrounded by his possessions and possessed by them. The only difference between Smaug and Bilbo is a question of scale. So it's the same thing in the Lord of the Rings, that, that Frodo has to take up his cross in order to grow in wisdom and virtue. And of course, the ring symbolically is sin when it's worn, but the cross when it's carried. The bearer of the sin. So Frodo takes up his cross, follows Christ to Golgotha, where on the same day, March the 25th, its power is destroyed. Gandalf. Tolkien's very subtle. For instance, there are various Christ figures in the Lord of the Rings, but none of them are one-on-one -on -one personified abstractions as Christ. And although um, C.S. Lewis would be horrified to hear me say this, Aslan is a Christ figure at all moments in all seven books of the Chronicles of Narnia. Every time we see Aslan, we know it's a stand-in for Christ. Now, for those of you that, again, are as nerdy as I am about these things, we'll know that C.S. Lewis will say, well, no, it's a supposal, but this is not a talk about that. But certainly nonetheless, right, whatever you want to call it, Aslan is always someone who is a Christ figure. Whereas in the Lord of the Rings, it's much more subtle. Insofar 
as Frodo is the ring bearer, he's a cross bearer. Insofar as he's a cross bearer, he is a Christ figure. But literally speaking, he's a mere hobbit of the Shire. Much more subtle. Reminds us of Christ without preaching to us saying that this is Christ. Same thing with Gandalf. The bridge of Khazad Doom, he lays down his life for his friends. No greater love has any man than to lay down your life for his friends. He does it against a Balrog, who's a demon. He fights the devil in order to, um, that's messed me up, that's there. See, I'm using my, I've got a pocket watch at home, my wife bought me, which I love, and it got broken once uh, in carry-on luggage. And it, my wife got it fixed about two months ago, and I keep forgetting to bring it with me. So I'm using my cell phone, to, which I hate that, you know, to see what, how long I've been speaking here. And um, it's now, I've now got a new text message. I hate text messages as you do. I, ne I never reply. So I don't know why people send them to me. Um, <laughs> but anyway, but I did know, in the top right-hand corner, I can still see the time. So we're okay, but um, much smaller. So I won't go on forever. But... Um, Gandalf dies. And when you read the book for the first time, you genuinely think, oh, not a civilized man. <laughs> Put this thing away now, then let's switch it off. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. McDonald. And when you read the book for the first time, if you had something spoilt for you by older siblings, or by Perish the Thought watching the movie first, <laughs> which I'm sure nobody here has done, <laughs> but I won't ask for a show of hands as an act of charity. <laughs> but when we read the book for the first time, we think Gandalf's dead. He's died. He's left us. We're as distraught as the rest of the fellowship are. So when he is resurrected, later in the story, we're as jubilant and surprised as they are. And we have this image of the death of Gandalf, the resurrection of Gandalf, but also the transfiguration of Gandalf. Gandalf the white, his robes are so resplendent, they can't even look at him. It's like the sun shining. In the end, he has to put his gray cloak around him again. It's like a cloud passing over the sun. So in this, Gandalf reminds us of the death, resurrection, and transfiguration of Christ. But again, on the literal level, he's merely a wizard. The elves. The elves are very, very important. Not least because someone wrote to Tolkien shortly after Lord of the Rings was published and said, Dear Sir, is the Lord of the Rings an allegory of atomic power? And Tolkien responded, Dear Madam, no, yours sincerely, J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> Actual fact, he did say that, but he elaborated. He said, no, but he said it is an allegory of power, particularly power usurped for domination. So there is a, a, a good political allegory going on in The Lord of the Rings, which is a topic for another talk. But he said, but more important than that, 
is an allegory of death and immortality. So Tolkien makes a point. When someone says it's an allegory, he makes a point. He says about death and immortality. Makes it a theological question. And there we see, well, that makes the elves very important. Because who are we? Well, in the poem that starts the book, we're told, nine for mortal men doomed to die. I know, I know nowhere in English poetry where the word death is mentioned more in one line. Nine for mortal, death, men, death, doomed, death, die, death. <laughs> I think we've got the point. We're the ones that die. But elves don't die. Elves are immortal. They live for thousands and thousands of years. What does this make them? It makes them wise. If someone lives for thousands of years, you'd hope they'd attain a modicum of common sense eventually. But it also makes them very sad. There's a great sense of exile in the elves. There's a sense of place, a theology of place. They feel very much at home in the world because they've lived there for thousands of years and they know it so well. But they also feel strangers in the world, exiles. They're hymns, and that's the right word for them. They're songs of praise to the divinity. Their hymns remind Catholics, can't help but remind Catholics, of the Salve Regina. This being a, a veil of tears, the land of exile. And we could say much more about the theological implications of that, because Tolkien, amongst other things, is making the distinction between immortality and eternity. Because what scientism has always tried to do from the time of the alchemists is two things. The philosopher's stone, how to turn base metal into gold. In other words, how to make science make you rich and powerful. Nothing's changed. And the other is the elixir of life. How to use science to keep us alive as long as possible. Nothing's changed. The pharmaceutical industry. But eternity is not the same thing. To be immortal is to be trapped in a fallen, broken, sinful world forever. So that the elves say, in the Silmarillion, the elves say that death is a gift of God to man. Now there's profound theology. Now I know you're saying, hold on, it's not a punishment, it's both. Remember, doesn't matter what Satan brings into the great music, God will not weave into something more beautiful beyond Satan's imagining. Deep theology. Then we have Aragorn. Aragorn represents kingship. And I could say quite a lot about kingship, but I'm running out of time, however. What time would you like me to finish? 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11.30, <laughs> Easter Sunday. <laughs> this could be your Lenten penance. Um, but Aragorn represents kingship and in various senses. First of all, King Arthur, the once and future king. Now the English believe, or used to believe at least, they used to believe a lot of things once. The English believed that when things got really bad for England, King Arthur, the once and future king, would return and deliver the English from the evil powers. I believed that until Tony Blair was elected. Anyway, the once and future king, King Arthur, 
There's also, and very, very important, there's a touch of the Charlemagne in the characterization of Aragorn, particularly his coronation by Gandalf, who's a folk figure. I'll say much, much more about all of this. Um, but there's also very much of the Jacobite. Now, I, I'm sure the students at Christendom College know all about the Jacobites. We don't have time to discuss it. But the key thing about the Jacobites, of course, the Jacobite uprisings, the true king of England, King James II, was forced from the throne by a revolution. And that's not even controversial. Even the Protestants call it the glorious revolution. All right? it's, it, it, the true king was deposed by a revolution, by a usurper. Jacobites have been longing for the return of the king ever since then. For a Jacobite, Her Majesty the Queen in England is not really the true queen. She's a steward who's keeping the throne warm until the true queen or king returns. So there's an aspect of that desire for the return of the king in Aragorn. But most importantly, of, of, of course, there is Christ the king, the return of the king. And Aragorn takes the pass of the dead. Only the true king can descend into the pass of the dead and emerge alive. But Aragorn not only descends into the pass of the dead, he has the power to release the dead themselves from their curse. Right, Aragorn. But then there's us, the most sobering part as we come to an end here. Who in the Fellowship of the Ring represents us? One of these educated guys. <laughs> Boromir. Now, of course, Tolkien's subtle, so in some ways we can see Frodo as an everyman figure. In some ways we can see Samwise Gamgee as an everyman figure. But in the Fellowship of the Ring, we have four hobbits, a king, a wizard, an elf, a dwarf, and a man. He's our representative. That's a sobering prospect. Because Boromir's the miserable loser. <laughs> Boromir's the traitor. Boromir's the one who will use the ring, tries to steal the ring from Frodo. But think about it for a moment, okay? Think about it for a moment. Your homeland, your country, in this case Minas Tirith, but think about your own country. It's about to be overrun by a demonic horde led by the greatest servant of Satan himself. Now, I'm sorry, but even um, Barack Obama is not that bad. <laughs> Nor is Adolf Hitler. You know, these are sons of men, however evil or deranged. Joseph Stalin, Chairman Mao, Pol Pot, whoever you want to name, they're men. Sauron's a demon. Most of his army are orcs who are not human. And they're going to overrun your ancient civilization. And there's no hope. Except for this weapon. It's a gift. Says Boromir. You'd be mad not to use it. All of a sudden, it doesn't seem such a bad idea. Now, I'm sure many of us would be tempted to make the same conclusion, come to the same conclusion. But the wise know you can't use evil means to a good end. If you use evil means to a good end, you don't win, you lose. 
even if the ring had been used against Sauron and Minas Tirith had won. Minas Tirith, under the power of the ring, under the power of sin, would itself have become its own evil empire. In which case it hasn't won, it's lost. So now you're thinking, okay, well, Tolkien has a very low opinion of us. Boromir, God help us. But then he also gives us Faramir. Boromir's brother. And the fact he's Boromir's brother, the connection is being made. Right? Tolkien wants us to make the connection. And Faramir says, I would not pick up the ring if I saw it lying at the side of the road. He also says, I would not snare even an orc with a falsehood. I would not tell the smallest lie to the devil himself. So he gives us Boromir, who, by the way, dies heroically, laying down his life for his friends. And read very carefully from the perspective of Catholic teaching on the sacraments, the final exchange between Bor the dying Boromir and Aragorn, the Christ figure, the king. And you'll see the Catholic sacrament of penance reflected exactly in form. So what we have now is Boromir, sort of Mary Magdalene figure, a miserable loser who dies heroically and goes to heaven, having received the last rites. Or Faramir, the perfect saint, like the Immaculate Conception. And now you begin to think, well, hang on for a second, He's being a bit, isn't he being a bit soft on us now? But he also gives us Gollum. Because at the end of the day, we're given a choice between being Boromir's, Faramir's or Gollum's, depending upon the extent to which sin has power over us. I'm going to finish with Gollum. When I first read The Lord of the Rings, I was outraged. And when you first read it, if it had had it spoiled for you for the previously mentioned reasons, you follow Frodo. For 900 pages. Painstaking over every inch of Middle Earth, so it seems, with this ring. He crawls with the help of Sam. Miraculously, but that's another thing I don't have time for. Up Mount Doom, and there he is, top of Mount Doom. And now, after 900 pages is the easy bit, I'll demonstrate. So easy, I'm going to do it again to this side of the audience. <laughs> easy. All the hard work's been done. And he doesn't do it. And you're outraged. You think, Frodo, you miserable loser. How dare you drag me for 900 pages? <laughs> and then you think, and then you think, hang on for a second, it's not Frodo's fault, it's Tolkien's. <laughs> I mean, poor Frodo doesn't have a choice in the matter. <laughs> and then you think, Tolkien, you miserable loser, how dare you drag me for 900 pages. And then you realize this is the masterstroke. Because from a Catholic perspective, you cannot triumph over the power of evil through a triumph of the will. 
Yes, the will has to cooperate, but we need grace. We need an outside agent to come in miraculously and save us. And I can't think of a better symbol for the beauty of divine grace than Gollum. But why? Because, if you remember, at the beginning of the story, towards the beginning, Frodo says to Gandalf, I wish Uncle Bilbo had killed that vile creature when he had the chance. It's a pity that he didn't. And Gandalf says, pity? But it's pity that stayed his hand. Now, later on in the story, Frodo has a chance to kill Gollum. And he says, now I do see him, I do pity him. And later in the story, Sam has a chance to kill Gollum, and he also pities him. On three separate occasions, the hobbits have been tempted to hate their enemy. The hardest commandment that Christ gives us is to love our enemy. And on three separate occasions, three separate hobbits passed the test. If any of them had failed, Gollum would not have been there at the end. So Gollum's presence at that key moment is the reward for their previous virtue. He's a gift. And what is grace except a gift? And just absolutely to finish, the word palantir, the palantir stones, the stones you look into. And what you get when Saruman looks into it or uh, Denethor looks into it, you get the propaganda from Sauron, because wh whoever has the dominant will, that's what you see. Palantir, we give it the definition in the Lord of the Rings, means far-seeing. Those of you that speak German will know that the German word for television is Fernsehen, which means far-seeing. But those of you that go to Christendom College, <laughs> we may speak German, you're very clever, but who will speak Greek and Latin know that the word tele is Greek for far and video is Latin for see. So in both German and English, the word for television means far seeing. Tolkien, remember, is a linguist. That's his main academic profession. He's a linguist. Palantir means television. <laughs> now remember what happened to Denethor. <laughs> if you watch too much TV, you'll commit suicide. <laughs> Don't do it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be back. Okay, Dr. O'Donnell says we have five or ten minutes for questions, so if you have some good questions, let's uh, raise your hands and I'll do my best to answer them. I can't believe Christendom College students are shy. Oh, yeah, here we go. We have action. 
So you mentioned um, Boromir, Aragorn, the Hobbit. What about Legolas and Gimli? What are they? What do you see them as symbolic of? Well, I hate receiving the dwarf question, so thank you. <laughs> but no, good question. I mean, I did, I did, I did address Legolas because I addressed the importance of the elves generally. So uh, about the fact they they represent immortality as opposed to mortality. But the dwarves, you know, um, two things I would say. We should not fall into the trap of expecting Tolkien to be deliberately leaving a symbol and everything. That's not the way he works, okay? So we shouldn't be looking for one-on-ones. My favorite story about that, I think there's two things. In The Lord of the Rings, we have the tension between the elves and the dwarves. That's the important thing. And the elves say that, that, they, that we put all that we love into all that we make. Um, so the elves, uh, and the really magic of the elves is not m- miraculous or magic in any al- 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 alchemist sense. It's because they put so much love into everything they make that it's beautiful beyond our world imagining. That added to the fact they have skills, which we don't have. The, the in, 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 the, uh, in Bilbo's journey, I, I make the, I talk about, there's a whole chapter on, no, Frodo's journey, the new book that's coming out, second commercial. Um, not a very good one because you can't buy it because it hasn't come out yet, but there we are. I'm not a good <laughs> businessman. But Frodo's journey is a whole chapter on magic. And I said that the, the magic of the elves and the hobbits, the hobbits have a great power to disappear before you know, uh, clumsy people like us come along. It's a bit like the power that a, a deer has to disappear in the woods um, or a bird to fly. I mean, these are all things that are, would be magical if we possessed them, but they're very natural to the creatures that do possess them. So most of the powers that the elves have are natural. But they put all they love and all that they make. The dwarves, on the other hand, are much more earthy. They're much more um, utilitarian. They, they, they appreciate beauty, but really it's about getting gold and diamonds and, and what have you. So it's about how those two worldviews come together. But the, my favorite story is in the creation of the dwarves in the Silmarillion. There's a profound theology here. Because um, one of the archangels uh, creates his own race of beings in defiance of God. And of course, God not only knows, of course, but confronts him about it. And unlike Melkor, who rebels, uh, this archangel actually deliberately, immediately repents. Not only repents, but lifts up his hammer to destroy his own creation in obedience to God. And at the moment he does that, God stays his hand. And at that moment, the dwarves have free will. Before that, they're just automatons. So again, more profound theology. Only God can bestow his image in his creatures. So, you know, a, a, an archangelic being might create a, animated beings, uh, an anima in the lower sense of the word, uh, that walk around, but, but not one that has a soul and is made in the image of God. So then God blesses them. They get free will, and then he says to the, to the archangel, now put them away. Put your toys away until the appropriate time, and I'll tell you when you can take them out. Uh, so I like that story because there's deep theology in it, but thank you. Um, you use the ring as the image for sin. Um, can you explain the somewhat key plot that it has for the Hobbit where Bilbo uses it to his advantage. Oh, Bilbo? Yeah, where Bilbo... Well, yeah, that Bilbo's not problematic, but Frodo's problematic and Sam. Yeah, good question. Is that the end of your question? Is that yes, just how the ring... Well, 
First of all, we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that the ring in The Hobbit has the same power that it has in Lord of the Rings. The, 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 um, the evil force, if you like, uh, in, the, in The Hobbit is Smaug, who represents the dragon sickness. It's the dragon sickness in The Hobbit. Uh, but still, the thing possessed possesses the possession. Basically, the Lord of the Rings and, and The Hobbit, in some ways, are, are a reflection on St. Matthew's Gospel. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that, does that have that in common? But the ring itself in The Hobbit is not, does not have the power. So yes, it's a very useful tool in The Hobbit. Because in Tolkien's imagination, it doesn't grow up, if you like, or grow dark until after The Hobbit's been written. So it's not a problem with Bilbo, but there's a deeper question because there are times in Lord of the Rings when the ring is used and it actually benefits. And it's what I call the, um, the awkwardness of orcs. Uh, awkward as in O-R-C-W-A-R-D, awkwardness, okay? Because, you know, if a creature has, I mean, we, you, you come to Christendom, you know about the inextricable connection, the one flesh marriage between faith and reason, fetus et ratio, you know that. Well, if a creature has uh, reason, then however debased and debauched they might be, you know, surely there's some possibility that some of them might find faith. But the, orc, the awkwardness of the orcs is they seem to be predestined to damnation, all right? Uh, now, I could argue, discuss that up to a point. I mean, we talk about, you know, if, if, a child, if a child is ruthlessly abused from a very young age, throughout the whole of their life, to what extent have they been um, destroyed as a human being so that they never can receive love from anybody, including God? They basically become handicapped. Now, obviously, in the mercy of God, God, God thanks be to God, God works that out. We don't have to. But there is a way in which, you know, the people can have their free will obliterated by, by cruelty. All right. Um, and we, well, we, we could carry on. But nonetheless, I think, we, I think we still have a real problem. I think we have a real problem that Tolkien creates people that uh, seem to be predestined to failure, uh, which, seem, which violates our Catholic sensibility. So what we, what we shouldn't do is to think the Lord of the Rings is a work of infallibility. All right. Uh, it isn't. It's written by a good, solid Catholic, and it's a, an astonishingly Catholic work. But there are problems, and that's one of them. Okay, thank you very much for You're clarifying welcome. that. Thank you for a fine talk on the allegorical significance of the Lord of the Rings. Now, as I'm sure you know, Tolkien repeatedly, in his letters, denies that it's an allegory. How would you reconcile what he says in the letters with the contradictory talks? He does, on occasion, say that it's not an allegory. Not often in his letters. Uh, it, the, the most famous thing that's quoted about Tolkien saying, Tolkien says in the preface to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings, I, I despise allegory in all of its forms. This is the argument that's used against people that want to deny the Catholic presence in The Lord of the Rings. Two, two things I would reply to that. He says repeatedly in his letters, not that it's not an allegory, that it is an allegory. All right? I actually quoted one example when that, that, that lady said, is it an allegory of, uh, of atomic power? And he said, no, it's an allegory of death and immortality, an allegory of power usurped for domination. So he calls it an allegory himself, calls it an allegory in other places. So what, what he's guilty of is, is, is loose talk. But my, my immediate response would be, when I say the Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, I'm not saying it Tolkien is. So the argument against the Lord of the Rings being a fundamentally religious and Catholic work is an argument against its author who says that it is. Right, so that one time, and the, you know why Tolkien said that in the preface of the second edition? These are great questions. Why is it a good story you got here? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a, 
but the, the reason is that, that when The Lord of the Rings was first published was just after World War II. And all the allegory was about, you know, that uh, Sauron with the red eye was communism, and Saruman with the white hand was Nazism, and the Shire was England, you know, and, and uh, Minas Tirith was, was the West, Western Alliance. And Tolkien didn't like that sort of allegorizing to lower the level of his work to that of mere politics. Uh, um, and I think that's what he was responding to. But he shouldn't have said, I despise allegory in all of its forms. Well, I could go on forever. But every word we use is an allegory. Tolkien's a philologist. You know, if I were to draw a, a vertical line there, you would see in Euclidean terms a vertical line. If I was then to attach a semicircle to the bottom left, you'd see a D. Well, at that point, you made an allegorical connection because you're not seeing the literal anymore, you're seeing the letter that it represents. So, on a fundamental level, we can't even think without allegory. Tolkien's a philologist, he knows that. So to say that I despise allegory in all its forms is a silly thing to say, it's a moment of loose, loose talk. Thank you. I have a question about, um, you were saying, when you were saying that Boromir was representative of us, that, um, that he's in his representative of us, and there's Faramir too, who's, who's an even better version, but what about Denethor? Because he doesn't have that repentance like Boromir does, and he's not good like Faramir. Right. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Denethor is another human character that, that represents the, the, uh, the follies and fallenness of humanity. But uh, as you mentioned Denethor, I actually see another allegory going on there linguistically between Denethor and Theoden. Here you have two kings, both tempted to temptation. Theoden is tempted by worm tongue, and uh, Denethor is tempted by the television. Okay. Shows the power of television, one wins, the other loses. Um, but I see a linguistic connection. Theoden, Theo, Theos, Greek, God, den, D-E, of, or the, okay? So of God or the God, Theoden, Denethor, okay? And I think what we see in Denethor is pagan despair, which leads in self-immolation and suicide against uh, Christian hope, which in spite of the temptations, to despair emerges triumphant. Maybe one more question. The people keep queuing up here, but I don't want... Thank you. Thank you for the talk. Um, how would you then describe The Lord of the Rings as a great book to someone who, like the literati at the beginning of the talk that you mentioned? Would you just say that it's because it's a Catholic book, it's a great book? No, that's not the only reason. Um, certainly the great books of Western civilization tend to reflect the same objective morality which reflects that of Catholic Christianity, whether you're talking about the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Aeneas or the Aeneid uh, or Pride and Prejudice. Um, so uh, the, great, the great works basically reflect a common moral heritage, uh, which if you like, the Greeks uh, were prefiguring the fulfillment of it in, in Christian literature. So I think the fact that it reflects Christianity is, just makes it uh, common with the other great works. But I think uh, beyond that, and that's an important part of it, uh, it's a prose epic. It's not a novel. It was doing something very new, very novel in the true sense of the word. Um, and uh, you know, it has more in common with Homer and Virgil and Dante than it has to do with 19th and 20th century fiction. So in that sense, it, it's uh, astonishingly good. It also stands the test of time. When you look at the, the works that were in that, that greatest works of the 20th century poll, most of the other top works are ones that are taught frequently and regularly in schools. 
So many people that haven't read much, they still remember what they've taught at school and they vote for those things. So they're on the, 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 the curricula, all right? Uh, schools all over the country, in, in the UK and here. That explains why certain books get lots of votes. Lord of the Rings is hardly ever taught. And it's because it's a great work. It's one of the great books of civilization. Thank you very much.